turn to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habayu, whatever you want to call it. Poor young man. Imagine going through life with a name like Habakkuk. We're going to look at chapter 1, verse 5. Last week we looked at Habakkuk's question. And his question basically was, why do good things happen to bad people? I don't want to name names, but there was a pretty big fight last night. Anybody watch that? The guy who won got like hundreds of millions of dollars, right? If you do any background on it, I'm not trying to slander anybody, throw anybody under the bus, but it's public information that the man's been charged with but never uh, fully convicted of about 17 or 18 uh, domestic abuse allegations. Um, one or two might be a little suspicious, but 17 or 18, I, I start to see a theme that maybe, just maybe, either there's a big plot against this guy or, or maybe, just maybe, he, um, he's not the nicest guy on the block. And you might sit back like me and say, well, why, why does a guy like that, who allegedly, with the quotations, is hurting females, and I don't know about you, but I've seen boxers, they're generally a little more fit and trim than guys like me, so they can probably do more hurt than a guy like me. And, and then he turns around and everybody adores him and adulation from millions and, and then millions of dollars and watches with more diamonds on his wrist than, than more people most people have ever seen in their lifetime. Like I said, it's, it's allegation. I don't want to throw him under the bus, but that's just one example. You see men who cheat corporations and crawl, you know, climb over men and women and families to earn fortunes, and you sit back and go, why? You see ISIS halfway around the world beheading Christians and saying, but these people followed you and they lost their heads for their faith? That's the same question Habakkuk has. Why, Lord? Why? Here's the, um, I don't want to call it the bad news, but God's answer today is going to be very unique. If I were God, and, and, and I'm sure glad that I'm not, um, I don't know that I would have answered this way. I guess that's what make God, makes God God and me not. His answer is going to raise more questions than answers. The one question from Habakkuk is going to lead to even more. We'll see next week Habakkuk's going to ask more questions. He doesn't walk away from this answer going, okay, I'm satisfied. I've gotten everything that I need. Thank you, Lord, for conversing with me today. It's just going to raise more questions. Church, uh, last week the, the exhortation was for you to go to Jesus with the hardest questions you have. My son asks me questions all the time. Could, could Jesus lift the earth? Could he lift this? Is he stronger than the Hulk? He asks me questions like that all the time. I always tell him, yes, he is. Yes, he can. Yes, he is. He can do all that stuff. Um, those are not tough questions for me, but they are tough questions for him. Now, for you, your questions might be, why do bad things happen to good people? Your question might be, why am I suffering when those who are evil are prospering? And so today, here is the first answer that has um, a specificity. Specificity? It, specificity. Thank you. It's specific to Habakkuk, but there is a general principle and teaching that we find in this. And so what is specific for Habakkuk may not be specific for us, but in general it is. And many of the stories of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the, the specific application 
is not for us, but the general application is. So let's look at verse 5 and see what God has to say. Now, now, real quick, don't take this lightly. The book of Habakkuk does not start off with, let me prove to you how God spoke to me. The assumption is that, that Habakkuk went to God in prayer and God responded. Start, the book starts off with saying that this is the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Now, we don't know if he saw this in a dream, a vision, if it was just a knowing. We don't know if he audibly heard God's voice or if it was a, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. We don't know. We just know that this is the message that he heard and saw. And so in verse 5, God begins to speak and says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Right off the bat, I'm going to stop right there, right, right before verse 6. We have to be careful with this verse. Sometimes you'll be going through things and somebody might give you this verse. Well, maybe God's doing something you just don't understand. That could be true. But maybe God is doing something that you can understand through his word. Or maybe the enemy is doing something, Satan, demons, what have you, are doing something that are anti-Christian or anti-God. And that's why you don't understand it or feel uh, as though it's something that is true. And you can go back to the Word of God and verify that. Simply because you do not understand it does not, does not mean it is from God. However, when God does answer our prayers, we, we sometimes are left with more questions than answers. Some folks see prayer as an exchange. I give God the prayer. He gives me the stuff. I want the car. I pray. I get the car. I want the job. I pray. I get the job. I want the healing. I pray. I get the healing. They see it as an exchange. They don't see prayer as a conversation. They kind of see God as the guy who works at the convenience store or God as the guy who is the cashier at the, at the superstore. I go there. I give my, my goods and he gives me his. God is a God who heals. God is a God who answers. God is a God who gives. But prayer primarily first is a conversation between you and God. And that's what we see here. And often when, when you're conversing with somebody, you'll say something and the other person will just ask more questions. That's what's going to happen with Habakkuk. If you go to God and you pray and you feel as though the Lord has spoken to you somehow, whether through his word or through the still small voice or through another person, and you don't quite understand it, and it raises, raises more questions, don't stop there. Keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You might say, this is the worst thing that I'm going through. Yes, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Because what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk is the situation really is a distant second to the relationship between Habakkuk and his Savior and his God. Verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Everybody say Chaldeans. How many people know who the Chaldeans are? Yes. They're Iranians. Close. Close. Very close. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, some translations say, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. 
They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, and this is the, key, the verse we're going to look at today, whose own might is their God. So the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, were a specific group of people by nationality, by race, uh, part of uh, an area in the Middle East that would later become known as Babylon, that today is Iran and Iraq, that general area. But for a period of time, they were the world's superpower. And at the end of, uh, you go to like the book of 2 Kings, you see that the Israelites fall into judgment before God. Um, they have betrayed and rebelled against God. They have mingled worship of Jesus and worship of pagan gods. Um, I think of the book of Revelation where, where Jesus tells the church to be either hot or cold, don't be lukewarm. They were mingling these two practices the worship of God along with all these other false deities. And warning after warning, prophet after prophet, God sent to them to repent, to turn back, to forsake, and for brief periods of time they would. And then they'd get another king who would just be who would just worship everything that moved. And eventually it's time to discipline God's children. And he does so through these Babylonians, led by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. And you read about him in the, in the book of Daniel. But like all world powers, I don't care which nation it is, what group of people, eventually empires get raised up and then they fall. And this, this Babylonian empire, these Chaldeans, they, they fall to a group called the Persians. So then that kind of carries on the history. But going back to the Babylonians, they were incredibly intelligent people there are uh, have you ever heard of the hanging the babylonian hanging gardens i think that's what they're called it, it was for the longest time one of the the eight wonders of the world or seven wonders of the world however many there are um because they were incredibly smart when it came to mathematics and 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 studying the stars and as the babylonian empire fell the term Chaldean came to refer to somebody who was part of an, a social elite class who was very smart and educated. The, the things that they wrote down and the records that they kept were the same that the Magi studied in, in the book of Matthew that we read about the, the nativity story of Jesus. They studied the stars. They studied all sorts. They, studied, they were innovators in math, and they were incredibly intelligent and gifted. We read a very good description of who they are in this, this little discourse. They were, they were mighty. They were strong. They were big. They were the, if, you ever went, if you went to public school and there was that big kid who was the bully, that was the Chaldeans. God says that they have the fastest horses. They're, they're, they're the, the biggest jerks. They're, they're super mean. They, they would soon, just as soon kill you as say hi to you. The, 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 the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they are horrible. And God answers Habakkuk by saying, I'm raising them up. I'm raising them up to use in judgment or in discipline of the Israelites, of the people. Now remember, Habakkuk's question was, why, do, why are the bad people prospering? And God answers, well, let's look at the Chaldeans for a minute. And let's look at how they prosper. Now, I've never served in the military. I don't know that Habakkuk served in any type of military capacity. 
But my assumption is, is that he would want for his military and for his nation, for them to be described as was described here, mighty and strong. Maybe not the, maybe not the negative stuff, but the, the mighty, the strong, the, the, uh, the un, undefeatable aspect of who they were. And, and God doesn't say that. God says, here's the Chaldeans. What's the folly of the Chaldeans, though? What's the folly of the Babylonians? That last verse whose own might is their God. When you make a false God out of anything, anything, that false God will eventually disappoint because it's false. And we might, see, we don't run around saying, my job is my false God. We don't say that. But in our hearts, what we do is we, is we so depend on those things. We depend on, we put all of our weight into, we lean against uh, so many different things. And when we do that, we make a God of that thing. We commit idolatry. We worship something. And maybe it's a job and maybe it's a relationship or maybe it's our past or maybe it's our future. Maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our parents. Maybe it's, maybe it's our, our self-perceived anonymity or uh, autonomy that we're just, we're just our own person. We could do what we want. The world is our oyster. Maybe it's just, I will trust nobody but myself. There's nobody I can trust. I must depend on me. There's an old saying in business that if it has to be, if it has to be, then it's up to me, something like that. I was never a big proponent of that, so I don't remember it all that well. But the basic idea and the general principle of the Chaldeans is as prevalent today as it ever was. The church especially, sometimes we just depend on ourselves. And we look around and say, I can't depend on those people, and I can't depend on those people, so I must not be able to depend on God. Jesus must not be dependable. And so we trudge along, and we just try to do everything on our own. We, we just forsake the God who has saved us, and we put everything uh, into our own basket. And one of the ways that this, this mindset is perpetuated is by lies. Let me give you this little lie. God won't give me any more than I, will hand, I can handle. You ever heard that before? That is a lie. It's the same lie that the, that the Chaldeans believe as well. That if I have this before me, I can handle it. God gives to us those things which we cannot handle so that we cry out to him. The Bible does not read, uh, it's not a story that we read and we find out we're so great. When Jesus teaches in parables, what does he compare us to? Sheep. Sheep. They have no self-defense other than to cry out. They're constantly running away. They must be led to good water because they're not smart enough to find it on their own. They must be led to the good green grass because they'll eat anything. And these are the creatures, the animals that God compares us to, that Jesus uses to describe us as people. The Bible is very clear that, it, that, that the intent of our hearts are bent on evil, that in and of ourselves, that we will seek evil every time. Even when, even when we put on the facade of spirituality or religion, we're still self-seeking. And so we have to understand that this lie that, that God only gives us what we can handle, if you can handle it, why will you seek God? If you can handle it, what, 
How does God even come into the equation? How does Jesus even get involved? He, he just becomes a, a means to an end. I just don't want to go to hell. Church salvation is more than just not going to hell. If we're just preaching you're going to go to hell, which is the truth, and that's all we're going to preach, we might scare a handful of people into the kingdom of God, but we'll do just that. We'll have them scared, and they'll be timid from now until the day they meet Jesus. First Timothy tells us that God has not given us a spirit of timidity or a spirit of fear, but a spirit of a, of a strong mind and of power. If you are only given what you can handle, then you are the God, and you are the Savior, and you are the hero. But if you read the Word, you read that God continuously gives to his people things they cannot handle. You see a man like Gideon. Have you ever read the story of Gideon? He starts off totally against the odds. His army's vastly smaller than the army he's about to face. And God just weeds out a bunch of men to where he ends up with 300 soldiers to fight this huge army. Did God give Gideon what he could handle? No. God gave to Gideon what he could handle. Put that on your Bible book cover. Put that on your t-shirt. Make that your Facebook post. God will give you what he can handle. And so if you're walking through something right now and you're like, I can't handle this. It must not be from God. That's not necessarily true. Whether it's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, whether it's uh, the, the disciples or the apostles about to be crucified, whether it's John on the Isle of Patmos, whether it's Pastor Saeed in Iran imprisoned for his faith, whether it's, whether it's men and women being decapitated for their faith by ISIS, God will handle those things. God will take care of that. These men who have lost their lives, these women, these families who have died, they have been ushered into the kingdom of heaven to be with Jesus forever. They today stand more complete than we ever have. And it's a tragedy, and it should not be happening. It's a whole human rights fiasco and all of that. But at the end of it all, God has handled it by taking care of them in a way that we cannot. We still pray for the persecuted church. We still hope that, that, that we can stand strong should we ever face that type of thing. But, but we know this, that if, if someone is to take our life for the name of Jesus, for his sake, we do nothing but go to be with him and gain his kingdom. Amen? And, and man cannot take that from us. The Chaldeans were their own God. Earlier this week, there was a politician who were renamed nameless uh well i'll give you i'll give you a fake name billary clinton just to keep anonymity in regards to abortion and i don't have the exact quote you can google it, it's on youtube and all that the basic gist of what she said was when it came to abortion and the reproductive rights of women because she didn't use the word abortion or or they didn't use the word abortion sorry um basically religion of any kind needs to be set aside for what is most important that our basic antiquated ways are not fitting into modern culture and our belief system prohibits women's freedoms and I would totally totally disagree with that I would say the taking of a baby's life 
a baby woman, a baby girl, that greatly inhibits her reproductive uh, lifestyle, her reproductive care. That if she ceases to exist, if she dies, that greatly diminishes her ability to thrive and live as a powerful woman. And see, the assumption by women or men or groups like this is that religion or our faith only works so far. And then at some point, we got to get serious. Okay, set that aside. That's fun for potlucks on Sunday. But now we're talking about real life here, folks. And we don't have no time for this. We don't have time for the Bible and Jesus and faith. We got to get serious. That was the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans weren't anti-religion. They weren't anti-spiritual. They were just their own God. And if their temple worship or their pagan worship got in the way of everyday life, well, then it, it was second, third, fourth, fifth. Everything was them and what they could do and what they could build and what they could muster and what they could earn. See, that, that problem is as prevalent today as it's ever been. Our world leaders believe in that way. Well, I believe that Jesus is my Savior. However, all these other things have to happen. All these other things are more important than my relationship with him. I don't, I don't understand that. I see men like Paul and Peter and John and James meeting Jesus. And what do they do? Everything's about Jesus. Their everyday life is about Jesus. Everything is seen through Jesus. Whether it's preaching in the temple or having a meal together, raising up money for those who are orphaned or widowed, whatever it was, it was all about Jesus. Now, does that mean they didn't do other things? No, they did other things. But even those other things, they saw through Jesus. That means today when you go to work, you don't work for yourself. You don't work for a company. You work for Jesus. If you're looking at your work and it's sloppy at best and you didn't really do your hardest, is that something you would turn into Jesus? Here, Jesus, I was tired. Here, Jesus, I don't want to do this anymore. Here, Jesus, whatever. No. And so we do the same thing with our work. Are they, is the work worthy? Is the job or the manager or the boss worthy of it? No, they're people. That's why the Bible tells us to look at Jesus. Because if we look at the people, we're going to say, they're not worth this. I shouldn't be doing this for them. Look at them. They come in late. They leave early. They don't work half as hard as I do. Ah, but look to Jesus. Oh, man, he worked a lot harder than me. He's worth a lot more than I am. I'm going to do this the best that I can. So at the end of the day, you can walk away satisfied in what you did for Jesus. And your company and your boss will all benefit too, but that's all second. You work for Jesus. The Chaldeans worked for themselves. The Chaldeans live today. The Chaldeans just are people who put everything before Jesus and continuously wonder why life is not changing. Continuously never putting the puzzle pieces together that life stinks, but I have these ideals that I can never reach, and I, I think that they're right and most important, but life is never satisfactory. Life is never enjoyed on any type of continual basis. Oh, there's moments of happiness, but there's no sense of joy at the end of the day. I can't just rest. I can't just exist in joy. And so church, I'm here to challenge you today. If you find yourself in that same place, maybe 
maybe Jesus is not in the place of your life where he's supposed to be. Maybe you're living like the Chaldeans trying to be a Christian. They don't work. The Chaldeans, as mighty and as powerful as they were, they fall. And they fall every time. But the Christian, even if, even if a Chaldean should take the life of a Christian, their Lord, our Lord, our Savior cannot be taken from us. What, the first truth we have to admit is that we're weak. That's not, that's not a, a prevailing message in our culture, is it? If you've ever seen the, the movie The Help, anybody ever seen the movie The Help? There's, there's a lady, she's a housekeeper, and she has this, this advice that she gives to this child, this little thing she kind of sings over this child. You is wise, you is smart, you is important. Like that, That's the prevailing message. It's very cute, very beautiful. But that's the prevailing message. Now we have 40 and 50-year-olds we have to tell the same thing to. You is wise, you is important. D don't worry about things, blah, blah, blah. What if we just admitted our weakness? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. In and of ourselves, we are weak. We are not all-powerful. We are not all-knowing. We are not every, everywhere at one time. We are weak. We're limited. We've only got so much power. And we get older, and what happens to the power? It goes away. It wanes. You ever try to do something? Like at, say, oh, 36? that you did when you were 18 and realize, oh man, I can't do that anymore. You guys ever heard of a place called Billy Bees? Billy Bees is in the mall. It's this 22,000 square foot room filled with slides. And we went there with the kids and some friends and it was amazing. But I went down this tube and slide, slides usually go at like a 45 degree angle, right? This one had, it, it was almost 90. It wasn't even that high, really, but I thought I could take that. And the kids want me to go first because they want to make sure they're going to be okay. So I get in this big red giant tube that's incredibly snug. I look in there. Get, wow, that's like straight down. And I go, and instinctively my feet went out to try to hold myself. I have sock, uh, no shoes on. I'm wearing socks. It's not doing anything. And I came out of that thing like a rocket. Just boom, there was some netting there and then a wall. The netting did not stop me from hitting the wall. Just boom, right into that thing. And, and, and I thought, man, I'm 36 years old. This is not something I should be doing right now. Daddy, go down this slide. I can't. Daddy's, Daddy's on the verge of an aneurysm. I can't do this right now. You just go over there. I'll buy you some popcorn. Go run. Daddy's, Daddy's going to go look for the defibrillation machine. Went on a couple more slides, you know, no big deal. But I mean, it was it was scary. I, I realized my age. I realized my weakness. I'm not 18 anymore. I'm not 20 years old anymore. Kids are crazy. They just bounce off that thing. Go get on another one. And some of you are not 36. You're 56, and you've learned this already. And at 56, you're doing it again. And at 76, you're doing it again. And some of you are doing great at those ages, but you realize not 18 anymore. Not 20 anymore. I'm weak. I'm weaker than I was. See, if we will compare, if we will just read the word and take it as truth, 
we'll, 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 we'll agree with what it already says about us. We are weak. We, we are not able to save ourselves. We are not able to handle the things that God is going to have us go through. Men like David, we read their stories and, and, and we use them for inspiration, but in the wrong way. We look at David, we see him conquer Goliath and say, wow, David was so strong. That's not the point of that story. The point of that story is that God was strong in a ruddy seven, you know, teenage boy before a nine-foot man who was basically a god to his people. That God was bigger than the opponent that they had. That God was the hero of that story. That Jesus is the one that saw David through that. That, that even sin and death that opponent, we don't conquer it ourselves. We conquer it through Jesus and what he's done for us. Because at just the right time, the Bible says, Jesus died for the ungodly. That's us. He took upon himself the cross of sinners to die on our behalf. Because even if you were to die without Jesus, it would still be too weak. If you die in your sins and say, well, I paid for my sins. No, it's insufficient. That's when you still go to hell. You need the death of Jesus to cover you. You need his life to fill you. And that's the part people miss. Why are you preaching to me about going to hell? I don't care if I go to hell. Well, A, I do care if you go to hell. And B, you're, you're in hell now. Have you seen the world? Have you heard about Baltimore? I mean, have you heard what's going on? This is hell now. I mean, life is awesome. Don't get me wrong. But, but, but heaven can start now. Our relationship with Jesus can begin today. And by, by not choosing Christ and worshiping him, you're missing out on that too. Ephesians 2 and 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the high, excuse me, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus died for you because you cannot die for you. And by living a lifestyle that puts him second, third, fourth, tenth, whatever, you are literally forfeiting the life that Jesus died to give you. John 10.10 10 says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come, that he has come to, get, to give life, and life what? More abundantly. This means that the life that the Christian receives through faith in what Jesus has done outshines the life that the world could have. This is why Jesus carries his cross. This is why, why the, the apostles willingly went towards their death. This is why these men in, in, in countries around the world, they stand before uh, their executioner and they don't recant because they have Jesus. If Jesus is not first for you today, he will not be first for you when you stand before your executioner, should that happen to you. 
You will not live for yourself today and then magically then live for Jesus. It doesn't work like that. If you will not live for him, you will not die for him. Our challenge today, praise God for this, is not to die for him. We don't have somebody with, with an actual sword above our head ready to set us on fire. We have the persecution of our flesh, really. Our flesh saying, no, I want this first. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to, I don't want to worship Jesus. I don't want to pray. I don't want to be with, with other believers. I got stuff to do. That's all well and good when there's a potluck, but today, today I got this to do. Keep living your life that way. And then keep asking yourself that question. Why are good things bad things happening to good people? The Bible says there's only one who is good. That's Jesus. And he saves the bad people. That's us. And today, give your life to Jesus. Become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let him, let him discipline you. Let him tell you no. Let him tell you don't do that. That's not profitable for you. That is not what I have prescribed for you to do. Let him lead you to the green grass and the still waters. Let him love you with a love that is unfathomable to where you just walk away and say, you know what, I just have to know that it is. I can't explain it. I just know that he loves me so much because I've seen what he's done through Jesus. So what do you do? Today you have to realize that, A, without Jesus you're weak. That even Christians who forfeit their life, they become weak. It's not that they've lost the Holy Spirit or they're not saved. They're just really sucky Christians. And today is a day to start over. And, and not, to, not to all of a sudden have the right t-shirt or to carry the biggest Bible, but to start living with integrity. To live for Jesus and with Jesus. To say, I, I, I live this way because I follow him. You know, I watch my tongue because I know that my tongue belongs to him. I watch my actions because my actions belong to him. See, many of us, we'll, we'll go, just to speak on language for just a moment. We'll go to work and the job will say, don't swear. And we'll say, oh, okay. You want to do that it looks bad for the company or you'll go to a customer if you're independent and self-employed and well i'm going to talk with different manners so i don't offend these people they're potential customers but then you go home and you swear like a sailor as if jesus's ears are stuffed up or something and just think oh it's okay i can just swear like that all the time i don't know where you get that logic where you would respect man but defy your god i don't get that and by no means am I perfect. The, the greatest challenge I've had as a Christian is controlling my tongue. Most of you say, yeah, we've sat through your hour-long sermons. We know that. But I mean, swearing is like worse than drugs. I've met drug addicts who can't stop swearing. They, they've, they've kicked heroin and meth, but they can't stop swearing. So that leads me to believe that swearing is a big deal. It's hard to kick. It's hard to get through. But the challenge is there. And we have to get our tongues in control. Read, J read the whole book of James. It's like the tongue's like a, a spark that sets off a wildfire. Whether, whether it's swearing or, or just the words we choose, I mean, it's, the tongue's crazy. That being said, 
The challenge before us is how are we going to build up others and glorify Jesus with our language? Are you going to do it perfectly? No, nobody's going to magically stop swearing today. And I realize that. Most of you are going to go home, slip up, and then slip up because you slipped up. You're going to swear and then say, ah, and then swear again. Right? A lot of nervous giggles there. But I find that, especially in our area, I don't, I don't know if it's just New York or something, upstate New York, because I come from California, and people swear there too, but here it's like a religion. It's like swearing is like you learn how to walk, and then you get a list of words, and they just become part of your common everyday language. And, and, and it just makes life more colorful, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I always see it as a lack of creativity. Like if you can't fully describe something without using those words, then get more creative. You know, watch the Food Network. Listen to those people describe stuff. I digress. Um, so the challenge here is to live for Jesus, to start holding up everything in your life to Him and saying, "Yes or no, yes or no." Not be, not to earn your salvation. Ephesians 2 just said that. You can't earn that. Your works don't earn that. But you now represent Christ, and now your works, they point to somebody. They point to somebody greater than you. And you're going to perpetuate the bad reputation that the media has already given us? That the world has already tried to bestow upon us? Or are you going to be one of the rare people that the world looks at you and says, there's something different about them? I just told them off, and they and they didn't return evil for evil. I, I'm their enemy, and I hear they're praying for me. I'm I'm against them, and they're loving me. Maybe you'll be that person, help redeem some of the reputation of the church, and not perpetuate the 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 idea that you know we're just a bunch of people who say one thing and do something else. Your only reason, your only motive, is to glorify Jesus. So when people look at you and say, how do you do it? I do it because of Jesus. And I fail at it most of the time. Like on Facebook, everything looks good. But in real life, it's all sparks and buzzes. It's always, I'm always scraping my knees and stuff like that. that For real life, I, I generally am not that victorious. But in Jesus, I am. So let's stand now. There's a Chaldean lifestyle that we can live. And it is counter to the Christian lifestyle that we have been led into. And so today, if you want to abandon one life to pick up the other, then today is your day to do that. And it starts by confessing to Jesus that you're weak, that you're a sinner, that you've sinned, that you have done what you know is not right, that you have not put all your faith in him. That maybe you know he exists, but it's just not, it's not really changed your life. Now we're going to invite Jesus in to just come in and wreck the place and do whatever he wants. And we're literally, we're inviting in rebuke. We're inviting in chastisement. We're inviting in discipline. But we're doing that because that's the life he's called us to. And through that, we will find greater joy than anything else. Let's pray together. Jesus. We look at the Chaldeans, and they were their own gods, and sometimes 
Even us Christians, we make ourselves our own gods. We, we just become autonomous. We, we just exist in and of ourselves. And you're an add-on to our life at best. And Lord, we don't want that at all. We don't want to change you to fit our lifestyle. We want to be changed so that we fit into your kingdom. And Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life, you gave yourself so that we could become the children of God. That, that through our faith in you, we become sons and daughters of the Most High King. That this title that's been bestowed upon us is something that you earned for us, that you have given to us as a free gift. We're not born into it. We, we, we don't accumulate anything that makes it, Lord. We are made children of God by you and by what you have done. And I pray today, Lord, we invite you in to change our lives. There are so many of us, myself included, whose life is just not where it could be. And because we have made compromises in other parts of our lives, Lord, help us to have eyes to see those things. And by your grace and by your mercy, rescue us from those. Rescue us from our sin. Rescue us from our proclivities and our tendencies. Rescue us from the old self and bring us into the new life that you died to give us. And help us through everything to lift up the name of Jesus. To not force it, to not look to apply it, Lord, but to just have that song on our lips of Jesus' name. That even when we're, just, when we're just serving and helping and working, people will know it's because of him. It's because of Jesus. Today, Lord, we invite you in to do that. And by the miraculous work of your Holy Spirit, we pray that this would be the beginning of a brand new life for us. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. Jesus, you're the best. And we love you, Lord. Amen.